Damien Pringle, this is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty, where we help you make the most of your loyalty strategies by listening to us talk about what we like to talk about most, which is loyalty and loyalty programs. A few weeks ago, we asked our listeners for feedback, and someone asked if we could cover high street winners and losers and why. They wanted us to focus on the less trodden route of grocery, fuel and travel. So to help us cover this fascinating topic, I'm joined by two brand new guests who both have a wealth of experience in this area. So please, could I introduce Penny Shaw? Hi, Penny. Hi, Ian. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you back too. We we worked together long ago. When was, How long ago was it? Maybe 10 years ago? Let's Abby not asked? talk about quite how long ago it was. <laughs> Let's just say it was about five years ago because anything else just sounds too long. Well, you still look fabulous, Penny, that's for sure. Thank you kindly, <laughs> as do you. And Phil Rubin from the US. Hi, Phil. Hello, Ian. Good to see you. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you today and with you too, Penny. And good to meet you too, Phil. And we're all joining in the daylight for a change on this podcast. So, Phil, you're in you're in Washington, is that right? I am in Washington, D.C., in the heart of it. Brilliant. And uh, Penny, you're in London, is that right? Yes, West London. Perfect, perfect. So before we get started, could we get, each give a brief introduction to ourselves and just your experience in this area? Who would like to go? Penny, would you like to go first on that one? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been working loyalty for um, some many years now, and I, I don't intend to count and add them up, but uh, many, many different loyalty roles in many, many different businesses, which has been really good to see how loyalty does or doesn't work for different sorts of companies. Most recently, I've been at IKEA in Sweden, um, being global loyalty manager, so managing all IKEA's activity for B2B and B2C customers, which has been absolutely fascinating. Before that, I was at Sky for a couple of years, creating a new loyalty program for Sky customers. Previously, there wasn't any um, retention or loyalty activity, so we created a whole new program, Sky VIP. And before that, um, we worked together um, at BA Avios, and then uh, I also worked for Pick and Pay in South Africa, which was really, really interesting, helping to launch the new Smart Shopper program as it was new then. And before that, I worked with Nectar Coalition Programme, which you may also be familiar with in the UK. Yeah. So yeah, lots and lots of different sorts of loyalty experience over time. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of it, and, and a lot of it retail as well. Um, yes, yeah. And a lot in CRM, hasn't it, Penny? You, you, you've had a lot of experience in that too. Yeah, for me, the things are very much linked to loyalty and CRM. Mm. Most of the time when you're gathering this information about your customers, it's so that you can get to know them better and communicate and help them with something. So I think for me, they're quite intrinsically entwined. Mm. Fantastic. And uh, Phil? Well, I actually, uh, while I've been in, in the loyalty world for going on 30 years, I actually started my career in retail at the original Macy's after undergrad. I was, uh, I guess, fortunate enough to uh, to get selected to go into their executive training program back in the original Macy's when it was uh, still a publicly traded company right before they went private. So uh, went through that, uh, worked in a store, opened the first store after their LBO, uh, went back to grad school, and that was really the transition to loyalty, working for an airline. And then, of course, I had uh, I had my own firm from 2006 to 2020 called Our Dialogue. And there we did a lot of work with uh, all, all kinds of industries, but we did a, a, a good bit of work in retail. Yeah, fantastic. And um, and I'm Ian Pringle. I think I'm known to, well, known to everyone on the podcast, I think. And I've, I've, got, I've worked for lots of retail clients in my, in my time. So across things like Electrical with Dixie Stores Group, I've worked in CTN with, with, with John Menzies back in the day. I've worked off licenses, DIY, department stores. And funny enough, cannabis in Canada during lockdown. 
Okay, Where, um, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you apply first principles of loyalty. And uh, and in that case, that was a really interesting case, actually. But yeah, we'll go back to first principles each time and say, you know, what are you trying to do? What behaviours are you trying to engender? And that was an interesting one. Although during lockdown, my children were listening at the door thinking, what, what business has dad got into now? Everyone's <laughs> not going to work. <laughs> Uh, I've got to say it was in Canada where it was all legal. <laughs> exactly. we, we actually did some work too uh, with a Colorado-based dispensary chain, but they were vertically integrated. So they grew their own product, packaged it, and had uh, quite a number of, of retail locations. And it, w- it was really interesting. It's a fascinating area. And it just it just goes to show that you can apply the principles and in almost any any vertical and as long as you know what you're trying to do and and you you build a program to fix that then you can you can succeed no so so the first question what do you think makes a good loyalty pro, a good retail loyalty program and phil would you like to start on this one so where 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 do you, where would you start well I, I would start with i i think what makes a good retail loyalty program is the same thing that makes good retail good loyalty strategies and programs in other industries. And that is, ideally, it reflects the unique characteristics of that merchant Mm. in the sense of what it should do. And at least this is the way we used to think about it. It should create the best experience for the best customers or those customers that that have the potential to be the best by, and this is, this is, I'm going to use this term figuratively, by merchandising all the best capabilities and features that that retailer can provide. And and so to sort of summarize, that loyalty program experience should be the best experience that that retailer is capable of delivering. The challenge is obviously you can't necessarily do that for everyone. Everyone can't have first access. Everyone can't have something exclusive that's what we saw with the best retailers that we worked with, as opposed to the worst retail, some of the worst retailers that we worked with. We're not going to name names. Um, would you say that, I mean, this is a word that Dave Cantor uses a lot of being authentic. Do you mean, is, is the, are you saying it needs to be authentic or are you saying it actually needs to be just the best you can provide? No, I think, I think it needs to authentically represent that particular retailer. Yeah, yeah. What that retailer is particularly good at. So, so, you know, at using Nordstrom as example, as an example, it, it could be making sure that shoes, which is one of the, one of the businesses Nordstrom was really well known for, was well reflected or beauty or, or something like that. But, you know, again, like the, the pro, I think this is one of the big problems with, with loyalty right now, not a new thing, is you have too many of these programs and strategies that are me too there's nothing mm. unique about it and in my mind the best loyalty program you should be able to cover up the logo any of the identity and you ought to be able to tell that this is from brand x whatever brand x i really is. like that I, 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 I like that concept because often you can't can you often it's often it's it looks as you said me too or vanilla um and Penny, was, were you have had a similar experience of that IKEA and other places? Yes, I, was, I, I know that agreement's not always brilliant, but I strongly agree on it being the best expression of the brand. And it really, 
the loyalty programme should bring the brand to life and be absolutely coherent with what the brand wants to do. But I don't think that that will necessarily always result in exclusivity. So, for example, IKEA is very much a brand for the many people. And it really, IKEA as a brand would not want to differentiate or reward people more for spending more because it really is dedicated for the many people with a thin wallet. Therefore, the loyalty programmes that we created at IKEA would never go anywhere near tiers and valuing customers more for more they spend. It was much more inclusive and welcoming of everybody. So I completely think it should bring the brand to life and it should be differentiated from other programmes. But I don't think that necessarily needs to translate into exclusivity. Yeah, it's interesting how IKEA take a very, that's a very different approach than say, a programme with tiers. And I guess that's you, you never considered tiers just for that reason there. It really doesn't fit with what IKEA is no. and what it stands for. It really doesn't. So, of course, you know, when we're reviewing and looking at, at new ideas, new programs, we would periodically consider tiers and could that work? And it never, ever felt right for the brand. No. However, there could be other ways of giving more value to certain customers. So, for example, paid loyalty, so subscriptions for specific services could absolutely fit within that model. You say, if you're going to give customers some extra help, so we were talking about ideas like maybe a home moving service or a a home refresh service where periodically your home could be updated to reflect the new season. And that seems absolutely fair to charge a bit more on a subscription basis for that because it's an extra service, an extra value that that customer will get. And that's, of course, open to all customers. So any customer could choose that if they wish to. And that would be on top of a a free membership. But at IKEA, we very much should for we wanted to be inclusive, accessible to everyone. So there were never any barriers to join IKEA memberships, either B2B or B2C. It's absolutely everybody's welcome and everyone will get this good loyalty offering. And then there could be extras for customers if there's something that suits their specific needs. And what about frequency of interaction, Penny? Because obviously with a brand like IKEA, where your, where your purchase frequency is obviously could be very high as you're moving house or something, but actually between moments, it's quite long compared to the two we're being asked to compare with fuel and, and, and grocery. So how, how did you feel about that? That definitely was um, a topic of conversation and a challenge for us. You're right. There would be periods of time when customers had projects on and the frequency would be very high. But then in between projects, customers may not have any massive ongoing needs that, you know, they could be top up shops, but not not with a great frequency. So it's one of our challenges was to see how we could interact with customers and get to know them and help them outside of the specific transactional moment. So we launched um, a new loyalty concept that's live in Portugal and Italy now, which rewarded customers for transaction and interaction as well. So those in-between moments, maybe customers would come on, log on, update their details, they might go to a workshop. Uh, There's many other ways that customers could still earn and interact with IKEA. And also we were thinking about how we could be more useful and relevant to customers outside of transaction. And we were exploring lots of ideas about things that customers would need help with or interact with daily. So maybe that's around looking after your house plants or food or other ways. So we were really trying to expand our relationship and be helpful in the broader context across the home. Because you're right, frequency is super important in loyalty. And if you're not 
they're top of mind. You will struggle more when the need arises. And did you consider partnerships and things like that? Like you, you said you had some experience at Nectar as well. Did you consider other partnerships where you could interact with the programme, but not necessarily IKEA? That will, I guess that's sort of further down the line. I think we saw an awful lot of opportunity within the IKEA ecosystem as it stands now to add more value to customers. But I think in the longer term, partnerships would be a good option as well. Yeah, it's interesting because it reminded me of when we first worked with Nordstrom. And granted, this was a long time ago. This was maybe 2007, 2008, right before the Great Recession. But Nordstrom had a similar ethos to IKEA in that they felt, you know, not surprisingly, given sort of their customer service, uh, sort of legendary status, but there was this ethos internally that every customer was valuable and they really struggled with the idea when we put it forward to start tiering the customers, which there was great data because there were customers that were spending $25,000 or more a year, and there were customers that were spending $500 a year. So you can make a real economic case to argue that somebody spending $25,000 should have an elevated experience in the store, especially when there were things that couldn't be couldn't scale across the entire customer base. Yeah. So they were initially pretty reluctant to do that, but especially when you think about how you make a business case to to transform loyalty in a in a in a business like that, which of course you want to sort of follow the Hippocratic oath of not screwing anything up, but they really had no choice. And they it, it, when we went in, there was a there were there were no tears in the program, so it was sort of one size fits all. But when you look at the range of customer value, if you're going to recognize those higher levels of customer value. You should, you should yeah, those customers expect, and, and, and this was interesting, we did research where we asked customers how much they spent annually and we compared it with their actual spending. And they were dead on in terms of knowing what they spent. So they knew what their value was to the business. And so much of loyalty is recognizing and managing expectations that customers have. Ideally, doing that without an an overabundance of effort on the part of the customer so that it's truly a rewarding experience. But it was impossible to do that at Nordstrom when you had that wide range. And I think what Penny has probably seen at Ikea, especially because of sort of the episodic nature of projects, is you don't have the same variance in customer value that you do. And maybe, maybe, maybe you, Penny, you did see that, but the broader the range of customer value, the broader the opportunities to deliver against and recognize that customer value. Yeah, I could see that Nordstrom would be difficult, uh, different in that you have the much higher value brands potentially. So you have maybe a lot more variation in potential price points where IKEA really is very much designed for the many people. And of course, there are different price points within IKEA. There's the sort of breathtaking items, the the super good value, and then different values from that. But it's probably more um, uniform than potentially Nordstrom. I guess also there's the brand. Did uh, the tiered program fit well within the Nordstrom brand? It ultimately did because the way we designed it and Mm. part of how we designed it was actually not to make it richer from a reward, from a financial reward proposition. I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of correlation to, to spend and rewards because these were, there were spend and get components. 
to the loyalty strategies. But what we did at the higher tiers wasn't to increase the payback. It was more about adding in experiences, whether it was having a shopping day with your friends for your birthday or early access to the uh, sales or or in some cases, exclusive access to goods and other experiences. Um, but they were typically things that were experiential, not hard in terms of value. And I think for me, that's the core of this question, saying what makes a good loyalty program? And to me, what makes a good loyalty program? You can add all the fancy stuff on top, but it has to be a balance of ease and reward for me. So for someone spending $25,000 at Nordstrom, they expect to get something back. And that has to reflect the ease of which they found they got that and also the value that they did. Um, and whereas someone, even when you get down to, so there's certain certain retailers that I would rate as a very, very effective loyalty programs like Pets at Home, which effectively don't reward their customers at all except for discounts but it's very very easy for all the customers to interact at the back point of sale and where i see it going wrong is where bands have got that balance wrong they're either they're it's either too difficult to join or it's or their their, their reward isn't 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 balanced against the effort or the amount of value they're putting in does that make sense i definitely think you're onto something with the simplicity area i do think that's super super important simplicity of proposition and simplicity to use. I think the harder you make it, the more difficult it is for customers. They're just not going to engage or they engage once for the sort of honeymoon period and then go away. So I do think it's really, really important to make or, it easy. Or worse, they, you only engage the people that were going to be engaged anyway because they had the most to gain. Mm. <laughs> That's the... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Phil, I've interrupted what were you, what were you saying. No, I think I, I will agree that simplicity is important. But simplicity for the customer doesn't mean simplicity for the retailer. Yeah. And that's always where I, we see clients struggle because the reality is there's a certain amount of, there's a level of effort and there is a level of complexity, especially when you're bringing all these disparate resources and trying to align them around a customer. It's not so simple to make it simple for the customer is I guess what, I, what I'm saying. And Particularly in retail, you, and this is a general, a sweeping generalization, but indulge me for a second. Retailers aren't necessarily, a lot of retailers are not necessarily customer driven. They're merchant driven. The, the, the businesses are run by the people who come out of the buying line, or maybe they come out of people, you know, more so even than people who come out of the store line. I think the best retailers and Macy's, the original Macy's, not the Macy's of today was a good example when you went through the executive training program, you were expected to bounce back and forth between the store side and the buying line. So you could actually understand how customers shop and see it. And then also know how to select and, and create assortments of goods that are going to sell through. But as simple as it is, when you've got this beautiful merchandised fixture or shelf on a, in a store, the effort that, re, that goes into having those goods at the right place for the right customer when she's shopping isn't easy. Yet they wanted loyalty to be stupid easy, which is, I think, one of the contributing factors to why, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, there's this sea of sameness out there. And you see everybody doing the same thing because they're just trying to check a box versus really amplify what they stand for and they often want to bolt it onto a point of sale system that wasn't designed for this purpose in the first place where 
And especially if you're in certain retail where you don't have a common point of sale system across all of your retail network either. And that becomes really hard. So, so delivering simplicity is not simple. I totally, yeah. That that often in retail, it's that's the hardest thing in some cases. I think it's um, we're saying you should never let your customers see your internal workings. Yeah. So really we, we've had some troubles where we couldn't execute certain things of different point of sale systems for online versus in store, and the way that resulted was that uh, vouchers weren't applicable if they've been delivered in one channel into another. And that for me is not ideal. You no. really don't want the customer to see the string and spaghetti that is behind the scenes. It's fine. You need to manage that and give them this lovely customer focused and let's say simple experience. But of course, yeah, it's in fact, almost the more simple and beautiful it is for the customer, the more likely it is to be very heavy lifting and hard work behind the scenes to make it that good for the customer. I think that's what you're saying, Phil, isn't it? And But you're saying that the effort's worthwhile. I think the effort is totally worthwhile. That I mean, part of the challenge, like Nordstrom knew exactly who they were. Yeah. And they would talk about things in terms of the Nordstrom way. And of course, they'd been around for, you know, a hundred or so years. So it was well-defined. We've also seen retailers... And I remember one retailer in particular this is one of the worst ones. And I think they, they filed for bankruptcy and, and have liquidated at this point. We, and in hindsight, I wasn't surprised. But when I remember the conversation with the CEO trying to understand, like, why do you guys exist? What's your reason for being? And he could only characterize it in terms of value. And of course, we know. As, a, as a market cap? No, as just value to the customer but oh, okay okay dimensionalize yeah. what that value was and so well of course everybody's trying to deliver value for the customer and 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 again when it's when value is going to be that generic then what's your loyalty strategy going to be it's going to be every bit as generic yeah and i mean and where else do you think people go wrong. I mean, what do you think of the common, um, Penny, what do you think common mistakes when you see programs that you don't think, or when you come across ones that haven't been performing, what are the reasons for those? Uh, I, th- I think there are quite a few. One of them, I think, is trying to design for everyone. We've touched on that a bit yeah. earlier, but trying to design for every single customer, you're very, very unlikely to be able to please all of the customers. So I think you need to be clear who it is you're trying to talk to and who you're trying to address and help with this program and it's an interesting philosophical debate I think at some points in terms of your very very best customers probably can't spend that much more with you so what do you want to do with them but I think you need to be clear about who it is you're designing for Uh, I think a lot of programs as I say are very generic they're not differentiated and they don't bring to life that particular brand and so that then just doesn't work I think actually also they're not generous enough. Sometimes they're just, it's very clear that they are not generous in what they're giving back. And I also think I've seen this in business. People already have a tech solution that they want to use. So rather than looking at the whole question, okay, I want to engage with my customers. I want to get to know them better. I want to retain them and make them more loyal to my brand and spend more with me. Rather than just asking that open question and thinking through what the answer should be, there's a tech solution there already, which forces the answer down a certain route, which may not be the right answer. I've seen that for sure. Or or the tech solution doesn't doesn't allow you to do the main thing you wanted to do that was the core Mm, of your customer (laughs) value proposition. Would you add any to those, Phil? Any to that list? Oh, for sure. And, and by the way, the tech, 
the tech problem of, and, and I think about this as technology being sold versus bought. There's some great salespeople selling tech, especially selling enterprise software and, and, and loyalty software as well. And so you get sort of the software being sold and the strategy and program being not designed bottom up, but really set to be configurable within that software. I think the other thing, um, and this kind of goes to Penny's point, though maybe in a little bit different direction about sort of a lack of richness in terms of the benefit or the value prop. One of the big problems with retail, and we saw this with Nordstrom after we worked with them, Nordstrom used to only, not to keep talking about Nordstrom, but they're interesting because they were so good and so so much better than everybody else. And what happened was they decided to go from only having two sales a year, which was remarkable pricing discipline. And this mm-hmm. is the point. This is one of the big failure points. And I think it's pricing discipline and revenue management or yield management. But they went from having only two sales a year to saying, we're going to be just like the rest of the industry. We're going to have seven promotional periods a year, which basically was analogous to what Macy's used to do, which was they would have these very secretive one-day sales and they would have them episodically only and they wouldn't announce it in advance. They'd announce it like the day before and they would be these huge events. And then what happened after they went public, I mean, after they took themselves private, sorry, and they were, they were becoming anxious about spending, you know, covering their debt, their debt service. And they just, you know, what's, what's the easiest way out if you're a retailer and you're trying to drive sales? You put things on sale. Mm-hmm. And so when you tie this back to loyalty, you're basically having the problem of stacking discounts on top of whatever the loyalty proposition is. And I think to Penny's point, that limits how rich you can be in the standpoint of loyalty if you're always going to be on sale for everybody else, which then also, to me, one of the ways you create exclusivity and a reason, and I think this is especially true in a, in, in a world where zero and first party data are so valuable, you got to give people a reason to opt in and opt up, which is really what loyalty is. And if you're going to do that, you say, look, and this is what Kroger has done very successfully, you pay a higher price. You literally are penalized if you're not going to take the Kroger card. Yeah. And we're seeing that increasingly over here as well, where member-only discounts, I think, have now become a two-tier pricing system where it allows you to keep your... It's it's what the hotels have done for years and years, where you have a rack rate. And who pays rack rate? You pay rack rate when you come off off the street and you need somewhere to sleep and you haven't done your homework, right? And I think that's what you're seeing in retail now. Yeah, Very much so. And I think that's where you see the warehouse, you know, the clubs like Costco doing so well because you're paying a fee. You know you're getting a reasonable amount of pricing integrity, and so there isn't that sort of dissidence that, oh, geez, I might be able to get this cheaper at Amazon or Walmart or somebody else, but I know it's Costco. And I have back to you know an earlier point that Penny made, there's a Costco brand proposition and brand trust associated with that. They also go a little further in terms of some of the soft benefits and, and sort of member protections that 
creates that kind of value proposition, totally different type of, call it a loyalty proposition, fee-based membership, um, but one that's very effective and, and is totally reflective of what their business model is, which is basically a warehouse club. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, it's a good point. Um, I've got three that I'll add quickly that we, we didn't talk about. The first is where prog- programs go wrong is don't believe in make-believe. And what I mean by that is that I don't know how many retailers I've come across who say my loyalty card works because my customers spend more and they visit more often. And I'm like, every loyalty program I've ever seen in my life, customers spend more and visit more often. It's not a measure of anything except vanity. Unless they're actually proven to be spending more than they were before or visiting more than they were before, then it's not it's not a measure of anything. The next is don't copy others. We've mentioned it as well, but you know, just because something's working or some your your competitors have it, you don't necessarily need to have it unless it is a competitive advantage. And then the final one is, and I think this is this is really important for retail more than anywhere else, is retailers pride themselves on being able to make changes week to week. That's why they all meet up on Monday morning and have sales meetings is because they want to change their proposition week to week. You don't think this way in loyalty. Loyalty doesn't work week to week. It works year to year or even decade to decade. And you have to be in it for the long term. It's not something you can change and change and change. Otherwise, customers get confused and they get, and, and it needs to have that core proposition. Um, I mean, how do you guys feel about that? Because we've all worked for retailers that pride themselves on being quick to change. I mean, that was true at Macy's. We would have our Monday meeting um, and we would, you know, talk about, and you were always, you were always sort of in the queue to be presenting what your best seller was. And you try and explain to the rest of the merchants in the store, what you did to drive your sales for your business with that best seller. But I actually think your point is really interesting and, and, and is solvable with loyalty because if a retailer is going to rotate its emphasis on different goods, different businesses within the store every week, and and loyalty, yeah, it's a long term view, and I think the reason one this is another reason why loyalty often doesn't work for certain retailers is because it's not part of the enterprise strategy. It's just part, it's relegated to just being a marketing strategy or even just a marketing program, not even strategic. But in my mind, if you're going to have a loyalty plat, loyalty as a platform in the business and the business runs with rotating different featured items or services week to week, then why wouldn't you leverage the loyalty platform as a way to showcase that, okay, last week it was category X, this week it's category Y. And this is going to be not just a, 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 a priority in the store, it's going to be a priority with, for loyalty within the store as well. So there, I think I think it goes to another point of fail, reason for failure of loyalty, which is there's this set it and forget it mindset. You know, yeah. like like the, yeah. the, the, the U.S. movie, the American movie Field of Dreams, right? If you build it, they will come about the baseball field and the Iowa, the, the baseball uh, field that they built in the middle of, of oh, great movie. in Iowa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but that that notion, well, we, we just need to have something out there. So we're going to have something out there and then we're going to go about our business. 
that's a, that's a recipe for for disaster from a loyalty standpoint. It's it should be actively managed. Yeah, I guess what I was saying is is it can be a tactical tool, but it does have to be there for the long term. And what I'm saying there is in point of sale wise. When I'm in with retailers and working with retailers, I say when you're talking about point of sale for loyalty, think permanent long term. Don't try and die because I've I've worked with lots of managers that die in a ditch for getting their massive launch out there, and then you go back six weeks later, you can't see loyalty anywhere. I'm saying I'd rather die in a ditch for a permanent tiny tiny logo that's on the point of sale that never moves, than be all over the store for for two weeks a year. To- I, I, th- I I will I will. Fortunately or unfortunately, fiercely agree with you <laughs> on that. It, 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 it is. It, it's it's a discipline for the business, every bit as it's much a benefit for the customer. It gives, gives it gives what it ought to provide. And then we saw this in retail repeatedly. Where it worked really well is we got something out into the market. And there was usually a lag. Because you'd, you'd be doing this and, you know, you'd be talking to the people on the merch, you know, the merchants, the buyers who are buying the goods that are going, you know, on the floor. And they weren't, they weren't necessarily going to do anything differently. But once we put loyalty out there and we saw customers engage and respond, and especially when business would get tough, mm. that was when we saw the light bulbs go off and the switch flip. And we'd see all of a sudden the buyers, instead of buying for stores, they would look to customers as a way to sell goods. Duh, that's pretty obvious, right? Um, but but you would then see them sort of shift their buying strategy to make sure they weren't just buying for doors. They were actually buying for the customers and seeing different customer assortments in stores and then having the merchandise assortments match those customer sorts assortments in the stores Ugh, kind of a mouthful but yeah. you get the point <laughs> yeah exactly i mean penny you you've been working the long term business and also with your crm background are you using that as well where you're where the likes of arkea are taking the data to flip it that way as well absolutely and so when you were talking about um, loyalty isn't there week by week to support the promotional calendar i think it absolutely can be but i think where it can really come in is to be intelligent about who is in the market for this particular category you're talking about if it's category x this month we want to push it it's what all the in-store comes is going to be about well let's find the customers who we know could be in the market or are in the market for that through data and equally let's not shout about this to the customers who've recently purchased in this category we think are unlikely to be um, in this uh, in the market this month so I think it should help us to be more intelligent and I think that's one of the challenges when you don't do that when you're mass mass pushing out messages about everything all the time that's when it can get very noisy from a customer perspective so I think that's the key for me is to get to know your customers know what they are interested in and what they could be interested in and then tailor your communications accordingly and I do think it's interesting when you think about communications just to think about it from a customer perspective, you, you still see so many businesses where almost each separate category or area feels like its own business. and They all want to talk to the customers. And so the customer can be on the receiving end of many different messages that aren't well integrated. So I think that's also ideally part of loyalty's job is to bring that together and work out what the best and the right messages are for that customer in a manageable volume. No, yeah, exactly. that's, that's also one of the one of the reasons why we see these failures, right, is because there is no integration between the CRM activities and loyalty. 
I'll 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 raise my hand as perhaps the oldest person in this discussion. But back it's going to be day, a hot. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's an audio podcast, right? <laughs> um, you know, why do we create frequent flyer programs? Because we wanted to put names and addressability and trackability into a database so that we could do database marketing, which is now called CRM, except to Penny's point, it's mass marketing through direct channels. It's not relevant. It's not. there. It, there's a total lack of discipline across most of retail. I'll suggest, let you guys react. That it, it's that, that notion of, well, if I send 100,000 emails, that's great. But if I can send a million emails, that's going to be 10 times <laughs> oh, better. Oh, don't. I've, I've, um, yeah, I've been on the back of this debate many, many times and lost it many times. Whereas, you know, you can be as targeted as you want with email and we all should be. And of course we do. But it doesn't work as well as emailing everyone. And that's the problem. So that you get better results by emailing everyone. And the finance director knows that. And he always wins that debate. But it doesn't make for better marketing. And it doesn't make for a better, it doesn't make for a happier life. And it, we all know we're doing it wrong, right? But it is true. <laughs> well, and it's, but, but it goes back to, the, it's a bad, they're using bad metrics. Because yeah. what they're saying is, okay, if I send out eight gazillion emails, we know that we're going to, we're going to earn They'll, they'll take the total sales and say, okay, we drove six cents per send. So why not? If, if that's your metric, of course, you should, the more you send, the more you're going to get. But the flaw is if you look at it over time and to your point, you look at not just total loyalty sales, but you look at same customer sales, which you see is all the attrition and all the all the erosion in same customer value, which then goes to and here's the finance the other finance perspective, if customers are a portfolio, and you're reducing the value of the assets in your portfolio, then long term you're you're actually driving down enterprise value. Yeah, I, I and this is where I think we're going to go back to DM. I I, I keep keep um it's a, it's a drum I've been banging for a while of saying. DM didn't stop because it didn't work. It just stopped because it was more expensive than email, right? And so I think we're going to, retailers are going to go back around this loop and saying, if I can use the data, if I'm clever enough and, I'm, and, and, I have the, and the cost gives you the discipline of making sure that you're targeted, then DM will come back in again because email has been killed by everyone abusing it. <laughs> I think DM already is actually. I, I think from yeah. a certainly um, a UK perspective on fashion brands, I'm seeing quite a lot of fashion coming back. And actually, for me, that's the perfect DM uh, material. That you know, it's that sort of thing that you will consume and flick through while you're making a cup of tea. You'll leave it on the side. It may not be that week or even the next week you pick it up, but it is something you want to pick up and flick through. And I find I'm getting a, a fair amount of DM now mm. from fashion brands. And and I haven't seen the, the return investment of those things, but I bet it's pretty healthy, you know, um, from what I've seen before. You've got to think so, or they wouldn't keep doing it. It must be working for them. Exactly. So just to finish off just today, um, which, as we've, we keep saying how old we are, so or at least not saying how old we are, Penny, but we keep referencing our... So if we could, as lots of people come into loyalty that haven't got masters of experience, what would your advice be, particularly in this in this sector? You know, if you could... What advice would you give yourself... Your, 20 years younger you know when you're first starting out in loyalty now that you know what you know what would your things what would your advice be 
Uh, so, so many different bits of advice I would give myself. Um, but I think one of them is to really always stay close to your customers. Stay super, super close to your customers. Research, find out. But don't ask your customers what you should do. You as the brand owner or part of the brand should know what you're going to do. Test, research, understand your customers' problems, challenges, opportunities for you as a brand to help them. But don't specifically ask them what you should do and don't ask them necessarily in a very binary way what they want, because in this space, they will always say discounts. And so that's true. If that yeah. isn't necessarily what you want to do, don't ask that question. So find other ways to get super close to your customers and find out how you as a brand can be very helpful to them. Yeah. And Phil? That's, I, the thing that I think I probably would have been much better off learning earlier was that this area, perhaps because it's not as well understood and, and because it's relatively new, even being, you know, about 40 years old now is, and we talked, we touched on this a little bit, but it requires such a leadership commitment and not just on a quarterly basis, not just on an annually ba- annual basis, but it re- really requires to be prioritized within the business strategy. And, and that's got to be a multi, at a minimum, a multi-year effort. It's got to be something that gets, gets talked about at, at board meetings. It's got to be something that gets talked about on quarterly earnings calls. And it's got to be something that, to your point earlier, it's measured on a per customer basis. It's not just measured on an aggregate basis, because then you can start to get the rest of the organization understanding what that d- discipline translates to in terms of their planning and execution, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whether it's inventory management, all the all those things. That that's the, the the three I had three words written down there which um which I think which I hope summarizes or, or or feeds into that is just share share share. It's get out there. Don't be don't keep stuff to yourself. Go out and talk to all the different departments. Talk all the you know it should be the engine, not the not the wing mirror of the company. You know you could help with almost any department and go out there and share 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 because it's all the way up to the top. Tell truth to power because you've got the data, yeah. Absolutely. It reminds me, I, I got to, to be in, a, in an audience with Jack Welch um, when he was running GE. And at the time, he was one of the most revered CEOs, and he had just ri- written his book. So it was basically on his book tour. And the thing, my takeaway from listening to him talk was he set priorities, and then his job as CEO was to do exactly what you just described, Ian, share, share, share. And he would, he would talk about spending 18 months staying on message in mm. terms of what the priorities were. And it would take that long, especially in an organization that size and that global. Mm. But it, the same, it, it, you know, when you talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and people get that it's a priority and it's one of the top priorities for the business, then people are going to plan and execute against that. And the, and the final one I'd say, and this came from, um, I was reminded of it when we saw um, Rory Sutherland recently presented at, at a conference is, try crazy stuff, right? <laughs> yes. We, we work in loyalty. We, I, remember, I remember working, when I was working for EDF Energy in, in Energy um, on loyalty, we had people on, on, get, get sent to conferences with people in nuclear power stations. They can't try crazy stuff, right? We have the license to try <laughs> 
to try crazy stuff and often it works, right? And if it works, fantastic. And customers love it when it works, you know? So go out there and do crazy things, yeah? I think it's that's a lovely idea. Fun. Lots more crazy stuff, yeah. Yeah, have fun. And customers recognize when you're having fun. So whichever brand you're in. When I think that's where, like, as much as you got you got to make it relatively easy for the customer when you make it fun for the customer. Uh, you, you know, I think, like, bringing it back to retail, one of the things that we talked about a lot back in the original Macy's was this is as much entertainment as it is shopping. People used to go to those department stores, like you walk through Harrods, right? And it's like, oh, I want to go see the seafood counter. I want to go do this. And, you know, I want to see the $8,000 handbag, whatever, whatever that is. The whiskey for me. That. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll join you anytime with that. Uh, exactly. Well, only go say thank you very much for for today. So, first of all, can I say thank you for our guests? So, first of all, thank you, Penny Shaw. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And, Great conversations. And thank you, Phil. We could have talked all day, but but I thank you both for being on. So, thank you, Phil. You bet. Thank you. It was uh, it was really fun to be part of this conversation with you guys. Thank you. And if you like, if you like this, please like, share, or comment on LinkedIn using the hashtag #TheLordyPodcast. And we look forward to your company again soon. Thank you all, and uh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>